Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Behrens, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder-Longmont area of northern Colorado. Our website is crimsonthread.com. This study was recorded during our normal Tuesday evening Bible study. Enjoy the study. We are in Malachi. Last time we finished chapter 2, just to sort of recoup where we are. Malachi is obviously a short book. We had too much to do in one night and probably not enough to do in two nights, so we may be a little short tonight, we'll see. Malachi was a prophet in Israel or Judah after the return from the Babylonian exile under Nehemiah and Ezra. All the reforms that those guys had made when they came back, such as you know getting rid of pagan wives and, and reinstituting the year of release, all the things that Nehemiah did, have sort of, the fervor has gone. They all came back, they were all excited and enthusiastic, they had a job to do and unified them, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, that's all done, and the messianic age hasn't come. So they're still under foreign domination. You know, they still have to give tribute to, I'm assuming it's still the Persians. So things have gotten slack, especially among the priestly class. And the book is organized around a series of statements that God makes. The statement is responded to by either the Jews or the priests, depending on who's addressed, with sort of a sarcastic question. Like you're a two-year-old, and you say, remember, just remember what I did for you. Yeah, what have you done for me? It's that kind of a dialogue. Now, I'm going to back up to 210 and sort of get a run, because there is something I wanted to talk about there again, and then we'll finish it up. So, Malachi 210. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord God cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Again, one of the things that uh, Nehemiah had to get cleaned up is the Jews that were either a remnant from the Babylonian invasion, in other words, they were not all taken off. There were some Jews left over. And those coming back had basically gone out and married foreign wives, Canaanite women. One of the things that Nehemiah did is had them put those wives away. So this could be referring back to that, or it could be they're back at it. In other words, Nehemiah got it cleaned up, and then time passes, and Boys and girls will be boys and girls, and you have intermarriage again. 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, and this is one of those sarcastic questions, why does he not? And so the comment was, you come before the Lord, and you're weeping, and you're all pious sounding, and you know, oh God, this, that, and the other thing, and God doesn't accept more favor. 
So the sarcastic question back is, and why doesn't he accept us with favor? We're doing all the right stuff. So why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of you to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in the spirit and do not be faithless. The Torah gives a procedure for divorce. So what I'm assuming is being talked about here is putting away. Putting away is different than divorce. In both cases, the marriage is broken up. There is a separation between the two parties in the marriage. But in a divorce, the wife is given a get or a certificate of divorce, which then allows her to remarry. In a putting away, the wife is simply run out of the house with no supporting paperwork whatsoever which means that she is still legally and technically married to the guy that just got rid of her, and she cannot remarry without being considered an adulteress. He can remarry because, biblically, it is perfectly legal for him to have a second wife. So what happens in the case of a putting away, and Yeshua talks about this, and he says the only valid reason for a putting away is adultery. If you've got unfaithfulness, then you would be justified in sending her out of the house without a certificate of divorce. If, however, you just don't like her cooking, then what you have to do is you have to free her so that she can move on and start a life with somebody else. I'm assuming that's what he's talking about here. And unfortunately, in English, the word always gets translated divorce, which is a different concept than what's going on in biblical society. The regulations for a priest are different from the regulations for everybody else. Leviticus 21.7, they, priests, shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. So it doesn't specifically say anything about divorce in the case of priests, but as I say, the, the rules for marriage of a priest are different than they are for a layman. The other thing he's talking about here is weeping and groaning before the temple and expecting to be heard. And God says, there's a reason you're not heard. One of the things that the later prophets get used for is they very often, because of their language, get used to speak against sacrifice and to speak against Torah. Because the latter prophets very, very often speak against the form of temple worship in the context of a corrupt society. The idea here is once the society is corrupt, the temple worship, which is 
commanded by God, is no longer pleasing. As we'll see here in Malachi, when we go on, what he's going to say is, you guys are doing stuff that's not pleasing to me, so of course I am not going to accept your sacrifices. But he'll say later on, get yourself straight, and then I will accept them again. So it is not the case that he's saying, I don't like sacrifice anymore, you know, that was for the time of the Exodus and it's all done. He is simply saying, you guys have become so corrupt, I can't stand watching you do it. 2.17. You have worried the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we worried him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? There's two things there that are related. Thing one is the statement that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Thing two is, where is the God of justice? And both are a response to human evil. Both are a response to human misconduct, human wickedness. And the, the two reactions when you see somebody who is wicked and gets away with it, apparently, is thing one is, well... I guess God must approve that because, look, this guy is prospering and so forth and he's doing evil, so God must approve. That's fallacy number one. Fallacy number two is that guy's doing evil and getting away with it. Where is the God of justice? You get both reactions and you see both reactions, you know, if you read the newspaper or anything else, you see both reactions happen. The answer to that question is Psalm 73. Let's go there for a minute. And it starts off, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's a psalm of Asaph. He's setting up these two questions. And he says he nearly stumbled because he watched the wicked as they operated through society, and he goes down and, and gives a list of the traits of the wicked, you know, their eyes swell out with fatness, they scoff and speak in malice, you know, I mean, they're just doing all sorts of wicked stuff, and they appear to be getting away with it, and furthermore, most of them die in peace. Asaph is looking at this, and he's thinking the same thing as these people in Malachi are thinking. Thing one is, gee, it looks to me like maybe God approves this, or B, why isn't God doing justice? Both questions are normal reaction. So I want to now skip on down to verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Between verse 2 and verse 16, he's got this long list of the stuff that, all the good stuff that happens to the wicked, how it really bugs him. So then he said, I didn't understand it until I went into the sanctuary, and then I did. Verse 18, truly, you set them in slippery places and make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When the soul is embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. In other words, my perspective on this 
was no broader or deeper than the perspective of an animal. The only thing I was seeing when I was looking at these people was the stuff of this world. I wasn't looking spiritually. I was only seeing in the natural. So in that sense, I was like a beast. I didn't have any spiritual discernment until I came into your sanctuary, and there I saw that, in fact, there is justice. Back now to Malachi, who was basically asking the same question. 2.17 and then go into 3. You have worried the Lord with your words. Why do you say however we worried him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking where is the God of justice. And again, we just went through that. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So this is in answer to how come the wicked prosper. And notice that the answer is essentially the same both in the Psalms and here in Malachi. God will take care of it. It's not justice is eventually coming. It's justice is always coming. There's stuff going on spiritually and, and so forth that we don't see. And what God is assuring us is, don't worry about it, the scales balance. If you go to the passage that says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. The things that you are going through right now, they are there for the development of your character. It, it's you know, like a football training camp or anything else. You know, when, you're, when you're doing that stuff, going through it is often very unpleasant. But understand that the reason that God puts you through that is for the development of your character. If your life was easy and painless and nothing ever ruffled your brow, you really wouldn't be nearly as spiritually mature as you will wind up being. So the idea here that, that the world treats people differently, it certainly does. You know, you have 16-year-old nerd snots who have never done anything in their lives, but they got an idea, and suddenly they are billionaires running Facebook. You know, and again, I don't begrudge them that. I mean, I'm not envious of whoever owns Facebook or Microsoft. That's not my point. My point is, in many cases, they get tremendous success dumped on them very quickly. Oh, take, take some of your Hollywood starlets that basically just got where they are because God assembled them nicely. But, uh, really. Yeah, I mean, they're there because God assemb assembled them nicely. They're, many of them are not there because of any depth or complexity of character, and you wouldn't expect that of a 17-year-old girl. Okay? And they then get wealth and attention and all that stuff dumped on them. And, you know, the tabloids are full of them running amok and, and crashing and burning. And, and, again, you can look at them and say, oh, gee, look at all the money and look at all the stuff they have and all that kind of stuff. And you can be envious. And I will gently suggest that there isn't really much there to envy. But, unfortunately, as, I, as Mark said and I say, too, is 
we're doing that at the expense of character. And the only way to develop character is painfully. Behold, I said, chapter 3, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So what God is saying is you guys are whining because the wicked are getting away with stuff. And I am telling you, I'm coming. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. You will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and you will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former days. One of the things that lots and lots of people pray for is, even so come Lord Jesus. What this is saying and what I firmly believe is a lot of people who are praying, even so come Lord Jesus, are going to be really surprised when that happens. Because they're not going to be in the standing with the Lord that they think they are. Me very much included. Okay, I'm, I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. I'm simply saying the entire body of Messiah is going to need to be refined. And being refined is not a pleasant process. What he's saying here in Malachi who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He, who's he speaking to? The Levites. So who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and full of soap. He will sit as a refiner and purify as silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Being refined is not a pleasant process. What's happening in context here is people are seeing what's going on with the wicked and they're saying either one of two things, gee, it looks like God approves of wickedness or where is the God of justice? I mean, they, they come down either way and God is saying the God of justice is coming and when he does, you're not going to like it. So you are all asking for the God of justice to come and you do not know what you're asking for. And understand, he is going to come and he is going to establish his rule. That, that is going to happen. Like John, we should pray for that, but just understand that it probably isn't going to be what you're expecting. You're not all going to be sucked up into the overhead and have wings velcroed onto your back and watch the, watch the action from the overhead. I don't believe. So anyway, at, at the end of this, notice what he says. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So he is not anywhere saying in here that the sacrifices and offerings have been done away with. He's simply saying, the way you guys are doing it is not pleasing to me. And when I get you refined and straightened out the way I want you to be straightened out, then you can bring the offerings that I have commanded in the Torah, and I will accept them, and it will be pleasing. Verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Notice the sequence. He is coming. He is going to refine his people. Then he will turn his attention to the wicked that you all are so worried about. Verse 6. 
For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So what he's saying here is, I made a covenant. I do not change. And because I do not change, and because I have a covenant, I have not destroyed you. If I did change, then you would have been destroyed a long time ago because I'm not pleased with you. Verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, okay, there's no more sarcastic questions, but you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. So you have this, return to me. So how do we do that? It, as in, not only how do we do that, but we didn't know we were gone. And again, I will say that that applies to a whole lot of the body of Messiah. God's saying, return to me. And lots of them are saying, why? I'm not gone. I'm right here. I'm faithful. And then he says, how have robbed you? And, and, and then he talks about tithes and contributions. Verse 9. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. There are many, 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 many people in these United States who are operating under a curse. And they don't know it. They have not read Deuteronomy 28. They do not know what God considers to be a curse. They think it's the stuff that's happening to them is just the way everything is. And what God is saying is, hey folks, you're operating under a curse. And it's very, very easy for us to be conned by the world into thinking that living under a curse is normal. I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I bet there are people in this church that have credit cards that are maxed out. That's a curse. Debt is a curse. Things like miscarrying. That's a curse. Read Deuteronomy 28. There's a whole list of things that God says are curses. Lots of which are exalted in the United States right now. And what God is saying here, and what I'm saying is, if you don't know that you're under a curse, then you don't know how to get out from under it. God says there's a way to get out from under it. And you go back to Deuteronomy, the end of Deuteronomy, and he says, if you'll do this, 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 and this, I'll bless you. If you don't do this, 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 and this, then you'll be under a curse. And the list of things you're supposed to do are way shorter than the list of things of the curse. If you don't recognize that your situation represents a curse, then you never take the remedy of going back to the Word of God and doing what He says to be blessed. Because it just doesn't cross your windscreen. So, verse 9 again. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I do not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, 
where you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So look what he's saying here. No more need. The things that are devouring your substance, and he's speaking here in agricultural terms, but it can be other terms too, he will rebuke that. Your agriculture will be fruitful, and again, I would extend that to the work of your hands will be fruitful, since all of us don't work in agriculture anymore. And furthermore, all the nations will call you blessed. In other words, everybody will look at you and say, wow, this is a wise and discerning people whose God is Yehovah. Remember that from Deuteronomy? He's repeating it here. God judges nations. The idea here is spreading knowledge of God and what to do to avoid being cursed is a matter of self-defense. Because if you are the only righteous guy in the nation and you're sitting there like this with your hands folded over your tummy on your blessed assurance and you're saying, I am righteous, I'm doing everything God says and everybody around you is not, when the Babylonians come, you are going to go to Babylon. Now you may not get killed, but Daniel grew up in Babylon. And so spreading the word of God and resisting spiritual and moral wickedness is a matter of self-defense. God offered to spare Sodom if he could find ten righteous men. And I quite frankly don't doubt that the United States is hanging on on the merit of some number of righteous people. But the idea is you need to understand that it is not, well, you do what you do and I'll do what I do, live and let live. No. Because their wickedness, in fact, increases the likelihood that a bunch of rabid Canadians is going to come down sweeping from the north and carry us all into the Gulf of Mexico. Verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts, and now we call the arrogant, blessed, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. 16. Then those who feared Yehovah spoke with one another. Yehovah paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared Yehovah and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says Yehovah Sivaot. In the day when I make up my treasured possessions, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. I would certainly pray that we're all in the book of remembrance, but that's something that, that we'll only find out on that day. Chapter 4. For behold... The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant, all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act. Says Yehovah Tsevaot. And by the way, you all know Yehovah Tsevaot is the Lord of hosts, which is the warrior commander 
name of the Lord. Verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So as I said at the beginning of this evening's study, it is not in fact the case that God has changed, abrogated, or abandoned a single word of the Torah. It's all there. It's all still in force. And what he's saying to his people Israel is the way to come out from under the curse is to go back to the Torah. Verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Jehovah comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter desolation. By the way, the word there is not curse, even though it is translated that way in King Jimmy. It's destruction, desolation, barrenness. Oh, I'm sorry, one other thing. The, the word there is things that are devoted to destruction, which is a Torah concept. Remember, in the Torah, it has certain things that are to be devoted to destruction and they cannot be redeemed. So when you, for example, go to war against a Canaanite city, you shall devote to destruction everything that breathes in there. Remember, Achan got himself into a lot of trouble for scarfing up some stuff out of Jericho when, when they destroyed Jericho. And God says you shall devote it to destruction. It's the same word here. Things that are devoted to destruction. It is not a curse in, in, in the sense of blessing and curse. Would somebody like to close in prayer?